Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Soul Path Podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Aryeh Green, who is the author of My Israel Trail, Finding Peace in the Promised Land. In this episode, in our conversation, Aryeh is going to be sharing the experience, the stories, uh, the wisdom, the insights that he gained while he was making an 800-mile solo backpacking trip down the Israeli National Trail. 50-pound pack at 50 years old, uh, dealing with some difficult life circumstances, needing to digest it all. Arya went out into nature and found out just how profound nature can be when it comes to shaping our perspective and providing us with that sacred space to heal. Uh, in this episode, in this conversation, we'll be digging into the power of wonder, the importance of acceptance and ritual appreciation. There's so much gold in this conversation. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it, and I'll look forward to catching up with you at the end. I love seeing you playing the guitar. And I play the guitar as well. So I just, you know, I saw you play and look like with your grandkids or some other children. And I just thought that's so beautiful. How long have you been playing the guitar? Oh, well, I guess I started in Menlo Park when I was about uh, 14. And I'm now 58. So you do the math. It's too frightening yeah. when I do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, I grew up playing the saxophone. And when I was in the military, it wasn't cool to sit around the fire and play the sax. And so I picked up the guitar and started strumming and I, I never look back. I've been playing for, well, since 1999, so uh, 20 plus years, but that's, uh, well, it's been, it's been 40, 44 years, I guess for me, but there were, there were some drier years there where I didn't pick up the guitar except for maybe once or twice a year, but uh, the first 10 and the last 10 have been, uh, have been pretty, uh, pretty full. Thank God of, of a lot of guitar playing. I used to write songs when I was a, a young man, uh, and uh, I, I uh, kind of hadn't really gotten back to that till after hiking the trail, and then I, I wrote a song or two there on the trail, and then, yeah, I guess having the grandchildren definitely uh, has brought it back up again, playing the songs I used to play as a camp counselor literally 40 years ago when I was 18. Crazy. Outstanding. Do you have, are any of the songs that you wrote on the trail, have you recorded and posted any of that to social media? No, uh, because I mean, I, I do have, I think there's one of the videos posted, but, but it wasn't really good enough. Let's put it that way to, okay. to feel comfortable about posting on the social media, but, uh, I share it with friends occasionally if they ask. Beautiful. Well, if you feel inclined to share after our, our conversation today, I'd be honored to hear. I love, uh, I love fellow right. singer songwriters flowing from the heart. That's it. It's that's God's inspiration Absolutely. through us. So absolutely. Author of the My Israeli Trail, thank you so much for joining me here for another episode of the Soul Path Podcast. It's going to be an exciting adventure to hear from you the lessons that you learned and the wisdom you gained from life experience. But I'd like to just start the conversation with an icebreaker by throwing a few sentences at you, asking you to complete. Life is, people are, I am. Take it away. <laughs> With no warning, too. Life is full of wonder and blessing. People are, in essence, good, even if it takes them a while to discover the good in themselves. And I am a dreamer, a prayer, a lover, a husband, a father, a grandfather, an Israeli, an American, a songwriter, a singer. And a grandfather. Did I mention that? 
Ah, makes my heart full to hear you say those, to share all of those labels of the who am I. We take on so many different roles at different stages in our life, and yet there's that consistent core of who we are. I consider to be the soul of who we are, our spiritual identity. Uh, that, that life is full of wonder is a really beautiful way to describe, I think, just the, the awe that comes from being present and being connected with the world around us, being aware of the world around us. So in your journey on the My Israel Trail, I want to I get to that, but I want to start a little bit further back. If you could share a little bit of your life story, as much or as little as you'd like, kind of from the beginning to what led you to the trail. Oh, wow. Well, do we have six or seven hours? Well, we, uh, and a couple <laughs> bottles of wine. <laughs> Is that, well, I, I have a bottle of wine right here, if you'd like. This is my own, my own private label. I don't know if you uh, read that, but I grow grapes and, and make wine. So funny you should mention a bottle of wine. I'll try and con- condense it into 30 or 40 seconds. Um, but I, I was born uh, in America to, um, I'm actually a direct descendant of one of the first um, Jewish families that came to North America. My family's been in North America since uh, 1690. And I'm a direct descendant of, uh, of the first leader of the Jews as a people uh, in, uh, in North America. And I grew up in California and Washington, D.C. with a very strong sense of both Jewish identity as a member of the Jewish people uh, and also as an American, as an inheritor of this great American uh, identity. And uh, I actually ended up coming to Israel to, to study to be a rabbi. And in the end, I stayed in Israel, decided not to be a rabbi. I became more religiously observant. Uh, you may know that uh, Judaism is more of a civilization, a combination of a, of, of a peoplehood, a nation, national identity, as well as religious faith community and cultural and, and linguistic uh, inheritance, um, kind of more like a family than a religion, as it were. But I ended up deciding not to be a rabbi. I became more observant uh, on the religious side and decided to throw my lot in with uh, this wonderful experience of our return to our sovereignty and our ancestral homeland for the first time in 2000 years. Mm. And that's what brought me to Israel. But the, the short version of the rest of the story is I was married. And then after about 30 years, my wife decided that she'd uh, she'd rather be on her own. And so I went through a very painful, uh, really devastating divorce that was not my choice. It was not something I had sought for um, and or sought after. And although I recognized, of course, intellectually her right as an adult human being to make a decision that she felt was right for her, it was definitely not something that I was either looking for uh, or or really capable of, uh, of digesting. And so for me, that really turned my my world upside down. And so between the pain and the suffering, uh, the anger, the frustration, the resentment that was involved with that, I ended up taking time off of work and spent two months, 48 days, because I don't hike on the Jewish Sabbath, um, eight weeks of hiking six days a week, 800 miles uh, up and down the length and the breadth of uh, the land of Israel, all alone. It was a solo hike and uh, nonstop with a 50-pound pack on my back at age 51. And uh, it was quite an experience. Really, uh, it did achieve what I was looking for, which was to help me to find healing uh, and, to, and to be ready to move on with my life. And that's, 
that's the story of what brought me to the Israel Trail. There's certainly more background I can share with you. Oh, absolutely. It's a remarkable uh, feat for anyone to strap on a pack, to hike that long, uh, let alone a 50, 50 pound pack at 50 years old, you know, and taking that up, you had done some hiking as I understand it, but nothing quite like that. And so, uh, the breadth of that undertaking was, uh, incalculable, right? You couldn't know in advance what you were getting yourself into, but I want to back up for just a second. Uh, when you describe, uh, life is full of wonder. Was there, did you See that a lot in your upbringing. Uh, what what was some? What are some of the early memories you have of the wonder of life? Well, I think that um, to a certain extent, the answer would be no and yes. Uh, no, in the sense that my parents, with great respect and affection and love for them, uh, were not are not. They're both thank God still alive at eighty nine. Um, the most spiritual or uh, or religiously. Um, focused of people. Um, so we didn't talk a lot about uh, gratitude or wonder or blessings uh, when I was growing up. My mother perhaps was a little bit more spiritually oriented than than my father, but I had a number of different, I would say, formative experiences within the context of growing up, one of which was at age uh, 12 or so, seventh grade, um, actually taking a class. It's so funny, Luke, and not, I don't believe in coincidences. The name of this class, funny in terms of the way you started our interview, the name of this class was Who Am I? And that class um, was instrumental in guiding me towards being a camp counselor and how I functioned as a camp counselor, reading a book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Kids Will Talk, which you may be familiar with, and then uh, studying psychology at UC Berkeley and being a psych major. Um, even going into international relations with my master's in international relations was related to the question of how we interact at that level on the national level as opposed to the interpersonal. But um, that was formative, and there was no question that, that there was a lot of discussion there of, of appreciating our blessings. But uh, more than that, as a, as a camper at summer camp, Sky Lake Yosemite Camp outside of Yosemite in the, in the, the high Sierras in California, um, I had a camp counselor. Named, uh, named Robert, who, who was otherwise known as the Wombat. He was from Australia. And he was, he was instrumental for me as somebody who, who really celebrated life, who really just enjoyed and took life uh, to its fullest. And so uh, those were, I would say, the first steps towards that, that sort of, a, of an approach to the wonder of, of the universe, let alone of the blessings that we have as individuals. Um, mm. But I think... Uh, the other answer would be that that coming to Israel and deciding to live here in Israel and to to throw, as I said, to throw my lot in with this wonderful experience in our in our real sovereignty here, and um, becoming religiously observant, I became much more focused on, not just aware of, but purposely focused on appreciating the the miracles that of of my life personally and our in our national life, our communal life, and so that. That, uh, I think, has carried through the last 36 years that I've, that I've lived here, 37 now. What age were you when you moved to Israel? 21, just ready to become, uh, finish my bachelor's, ready to study to become a rabbi. So it's fascinating to me that you were studying at, at UC Berkeley, you were studying psychology, and then you transitioned toward uh, pursuing the path of a rabbi and becoming a religious practitioner at that point. And it would, it would almost seem like, uh, I guess, you know, the assumption would be that somebody that studied, you know, psychology at UC Berkeley might be open 
spiritually, but would probably would not later then pursue uh, religious practice. And so I'm curious in that time of study and psychology, was there something that sparked your spiritual interest, your curiosity? How did you come from that point to being uh, passionate and pursuing the religious path? Well, all of these things I think are interconnected, as of course I'm sure you agree. In my formative years as a teenager, I was seeking out spirituality. I would go with friends to church, to synagogue, to youth groups, looking for you know the answers to some of the biggest questions that we all ask. Perhaps I'm I might have just been a little bit of ahead of the curve at 14, 15, 16 instead of waiting till 18 to 20 or, or, or what have you. But I was I was looking for some answers and I had a number of I think important um, uh, experiences um, with a number of very good, down-to-earth and sensitive spiritual leaders, pastors, rabbis, and others, who encouraged me to continue to explore without uh, trying to coerce me in, in one or another specific direction. So when I got to UC Berkeley, um, I was already, I would call it within the context, if you're familiar at all with the different streams of Judaism. It doesn't matter because it's true for any spiritual, I think, faith community. There are more, those who are more or less involved in the ritual aspects. And I, I kind of adopted a number uh, of, of ritual aspects of Judaism, which meant something to me. So for instance, I would get on my motorcycle to, uh, and go to the top of a hill somewhere and play the guitar, if we were talking about guitar earlier, to sing in the, uh, the Sabbath day on a Friday night. Um, I, I would light candles, two candles, which is the traditional religious way of bringing in the Sabbath on a Friday night. Um, but then when I was at Berkeley, uh, I actually, Berkeley doesn't have minors, but just as a kind of a, a short uh, um, shorthand, you might say I mon minored in religious studies because I did take a number of courses uh, in comparative religion, uh, Gandhian methods of conflict resolution, Great other example, because it's connecting religiosity, spirituality, my eventual move into international relations, and uh, um, the, the psychological elements of conflict. Um, so that was, uh, you may know, because you're in Seattle, that Berkeley, Berkeley has a certain spiritual element, not just on Telegraph Avenue with the crazies running around and tossing to themselves. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's the, the graduate union, the graduate theological union is based in in Berkeley. There are a number of other spiritual movements, and I spent a lot of time doing Zen sitting and exploring uh, Sikh temples and uh, and going to, I had an Episcopalian girlfriend. We used to go to Friday night services in my synagogue in San Francisco with my grandmother, and then Sunday evening vespers or, or uh, services at her Episcopalian church there in Berkeley. So I was doing a lot of that, and it did connect to the study of psychology because the studies that I were doing were really focused less uh, on the analytical side or on the research side, and more on the the cognitive, behavioral, uh, and and affective side. Looking at our feelings, looking at what it is that gives our life meaning, and, and so it it is connected more than you might think. My pursuit was not an academic pursuit of psychology as much as it was an interest in people and in trying to find answers. Or even if you don't find the answers, trying to experience the process of looking for the answers to those those big questions of the universe. That's awesome. Yeah, I I I see the two uh, psychology and spirituality as as perfectly blended, just as much as mathematics and philosophy are perfectly blended. They're intricately, excuse me, intricately <laughs> woven together, and. 
I don't believe that we can study the human mind or human behavior without encountering the spiritual experience that's shared across the spectrum of humanity. Uh, all the different traditions passed down through the ages. It is precisely to make sense of life, to give life meaning to the origin story. Where do we come from? What happens life after death and all of that? And it's uh, it's really I think a special path when you have the opportunity, you're not necessarily uh, raised in a dogmatic home. So it's not a heavy uh, indoctrination, if you will. And you're, you're free to be curious and explore and then find that path that ultimately in my words would be that the find the path that feeds the soul. And so when you were experiencing uh, services at the Episcopal church, I would imagine you might have had, you know, some some fellowship there, some rich spiritual experience or at a synagogue or in these different areas. Uh, do any of those experiences stand out to you as as maybe one of the first times you really felt the presence of God or a divine connection of some sort? Well, I would say that it's an interesting aspect of my life. When I was running my book, um, I had to use my I had to choose. Um, the language that I was using very carefully because I, I started writing about how I discovered, for instance, I discovered just kind of an, an amazement at natural phenomena. And one of my children, adult children, said to me, Daddy, that, that you can't say that. You've always been, you know, one to take us out on the, on the balcony and say, come look at this sunset with me. It's phenomenal. Um, so, so I really have had that wonder, as it were, of nature and connection with the universe, I may not have connected it growing up with a concept of God as creator uh, or as all-powerful or, or, or omniscient or what have you. Um, but there was, a, there was a, I think, a transformational experience that I don't mention in the book that I talk about. Actually, maybe I do. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote the book. I don't remember what I did or didn't include in it. Um, uh, but I wrote in my journal as I was traveling through Europe. After I spent a semester at, uh, at the University of Surrey in, uh, in England, and I was making my way to Israel to start my rabbinical program, I had a number of different experiences. I won't go into them now, but this is what sparked my interest in more traditional, what I'll call normative Jewish practice and philosophy. But I had a number of different experiences, one of which was sitting uh, in, uh, uh, in and around around the foothills of Mount Olympus. Um, in uh, in Greece, in, in the Peloponnese Islands of Greece. And uh, there I was sitting next to a stream that was apparently where, where uh, Persephone uh, had, there, there was some mythological Greek story there that spoke to me. And at that point, I did have something of an epiphany, which is not in answer to your question where I saw God or experienced God, but what I, the epiphany that I had was I had been struggling Remember that I'm on my way from Europe to Jerusalem to study to be a, a rabbi, but I, I didn't believe in God. And that, that dichotomy, that dilemma really bothered me. Mm. How can I become a rabbi if I don't believe in God? That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it was sitting on the side of that stream that I suddenly had this epiphany where I said to myself, you know what? It doesn't matter. I believe in a transcend transcendental force. And this is before Star Wars, by the way, um, a, a transcendental force which powers the universe, which uh, I, I kind of I can't say I came to this on my own volition. I'd read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle 
Christians. In the course of my travels to Europe, I, I had read numerous books on Judaism, Christianity, what have you, in those formative years between age, say, 14, 15, till this point, age 21. But I can't identify precisely where this set of ideas came from. It was a, it was a, a combination, an assortment of, of kind of all that I had read until then. But I simply decided that, that there is, and I believe in, some unifying force in the universe. There is some greater good or goodness that we're all part of. There is definitely some sense of creation and creator that binds us together as humanity and binds us with the rest of the universe. And that epiphany for me enabled me to come to Israel and study to be a rabbi for the first year before I dropped out of the school without actually addressing directly or feeling the need to, uh, to come to terms with or find an answer to the fact that I didn't believe in God because it just changed my definition of God. It enabled me to be a much more uh, open, you know, accepting uh, view of what do we mean when we say God as opposed to thinking of, you know, an old man with a big beard who, you know, controls everything we do or, or created the universe. All right. That is a really key, well, you said epiphany, I, I agree with that word, <clears throat> that insight, that uh, awakening, if you will, to, to that presence. I, I define God this way. I mean, we define God differently, I think, in different stages of life, but uh, God, good old divinity, G-O-D, good old divinity, you know, life is fundamentally good. Because all we really have to do is eat, sleep, and procreate. And those are all pretty enjoyable experiences. You know? But there, there is this divine essence. There is an eternal enigma. There is an intelligent existence. There is something that animates the cosmos. And we are part of that. We are expressions of that. And you know, if you were studying traditional scripture, it would say that you know, we are, God is in us. You know, we are expressions of God, our children of God, uh, different sectors of spirituality have different beliefs about it. But ultimately, it is... The, the unifying force, I think those were great words. Uh, how has your <clears throat> understanding of God from, from that epiphany point to coming through your journey, on your time on the trail, has your definition of God, understanding of God changed? And if so, can you describe that transition or change? Well, it's less to do with the trail than it, than it has to do with the the transition that I went through in those first few years in Israel, I became more religiously observant. What could be called today, if you have to put me in a box, which I don't, I don't normally do, uh, I became orthodox in my observance. I keep uh, the Sabbath, Shabbat. I keep kosher, the laws of uh, of kashrut, uh, and other elements of being a, a normative or, or traditional Jew in terms of my religious ritual behavior. Um. I was able to do that because I recognized the full beauty of the puzzle, as it were, mm -hmm. in those first years of my becoming more interested in our traditional observance. Um, again, I, I kind of alleviated the need or I released myself from, from the demand that I, have to ha I had to have answers for everything. If there were a few pieces of the puzzle that still confused me or that I wasn't 100% uh, um, certain of, um, what I recognized was, if you look at a thousand-piece puzzle, um, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful mosaic, it's a beautiful painting. Even if one or two of the pieces are a little bit blurry, um, and so I, I didn't really have to fight that, but I did come to an acceptance through a number of different books I read, classes I took, conversations I had over those first years. 
Um, I did come to an acceptance of the con- the, the basic concept of uh, of God as creator. Uh, science, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've read more books than I have, as have our listeners or our viewers, on you know proofs of God's existence. Uh, the Jewish people's continued existence is one of the best, if if more enjoyable or kind of maybe uh, um, ironic and uh, and playful proofs that God exists. If God didn't exist, I think the Jews might have faded away from from the the stage of history many, many years ago. But uh, to be less plainful, the issue of the creation of the universe, the complexity of of the human anatomy, uh, the 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 beauty and wonder that that we've been talking about, I did accept the the basic reality of God of a of a uh, and uh, a being that that was responsible for the goodness of nature that we experience and for the blessings in our life, what have you. So it wasn't so much the trail as it was the process that 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 I underwent there in those years. Uh, hiking on the trail, and this goes back to what I was saying about my my children helping me to and my wife helping me to uh, to choose better language. The trail reinforced for me all of these elements. I, I speak in my book about the element of gratitude, element of humility, the element of acceptance. Uh, that we're not in charge of the world. Who's in charge? God's in charge. <laughs> you know, and, and and that's such a liberating concept. Yeah. You know, I, I can't I can't change everything. I can do my make my effort to, to do what I can do, but like that old pithy aphorism about the I think it's called the serenity or serenity prayer to to accept the things that I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference between those I can and that I can't. Yeah. Um, all of that was was tied up in my understanding of God's existence and and my relationship with God and God's relationship with us as humanity, as well as of course with us as the as the Jewish people. Beautiful. I a couple of things that stood out to me there in that share was uh, the playful. You are being playful with what could be interpreted as a painful history for the Jewish people. Uh, and then also in personal life, you know, we go through tragedy, tribulation. And and then if we can be playful with that in our in our mind, be curious. I think that is a it helps a lot toward healing. And then the thing that really stood out, I wrote down was releasing the need for answers. You know, we can't mm. always make sense of it at the cognitive level. We can't always put language to it that somehow soothes it. That has to happen at a deeper level, at a spiritual level for deeper healing. Right. That's been my personal experience. And I love backpacking myself. I grew up in the Alaskan wilderness uh, without running water. Oh, wow. electricity. And so there are many times in my childhood, which was not a basket of roses. It was a rough upbringing, but I would go out and, and just be alone in nature. And there were times when I'd stand someplace and feel like I might be the first human being that's ever stood right here and looked at that swamp. And there was something <laughs> that resonated with me in your book about, about feeling small. And yet there's a magic that abounds in that moment, you know, feeling that connection with everything that is with, I would call it the divine connection. My connection with God started in those moments <clears throat> and I wasn't raised religious. I did become, uh, I've been pastor Luke. I was very involved in religious ritual and that for a period of time in my, in my twenties. Uh, and have you know, since then moved uh, into different expressions, uh, different exploring different paths of spiritual journey. Uh, but I come back to every year going on a solo backpacking trip. And I say to seek wisdom in solitude, 
to get out of my head and into my heart so that I can listen. I can hear at a deeper level than just the mental chatter. And it takes time on the trail days or even weeks. Uh, and, and I think that might be an appropriate transition point into the my Israel trail, that journey, you opened up the first chapter the title was humility and humility that if there is nothing else that a person learns when you're in the back country or you strap on a pack and you go out and encounter the elements, it's humility, right? Can, can you describe for me your experience, those first few days, that taste of humility, what was that like for you? I, I love, I love your perspective and the fact that you've done also the kind of wilderness uh, trekking that 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 deepens that or introduces you to that feeling because yes there's no question and and i have to say pastor look this, this is one of the things i speak a lot in in synagogue sometimes in churches as well uh, and one of the things that i love is to talk about the desert experience mm. um and sometimes in fact i would say often i won't do it now because this has a as a recorded both video and audio it doesn't quite work in this kind of a context, but when you're with, even on a video or audio, you're with a crowd of other people, it doesn't matter whether it's 500 or 50 or 10, and sometimes I just stop. Like I did here. <laughs> but I let the silence rest for 30 seconds. Now, I mean, we're not going to do that here because you can't just have silence for 30 seconds. But if, if those listening or watching here can, can try it and think, even if you press pause and wait for 30 seconds, I think all of us are astounded at how long 30 seconds of silence feels. And I, I do that, and it's almost became a meditative practice for me, walking minute after minute, step after step, hour after hour in the desert, in the silence of the desert, I like for people to get at least a little bit of a taste of how overwhelming that is. Mm. In one sense, frightening in its overwhelming uh, um, nature. On the other hand, it brings out this sense of, of humility, this sense of a vast universe that we are simply a very, very small, small part of. And the, the humility that connects, uh, that at least the lesson that I learned, other people, I'm sure, learn other lessons from that kind of silence in the desert. But for me, those first few days and, and, and literally 10 hours of walking in silence all alone, surrounded by desert hills and valleys and dry mountain, uh, uh, dry creek beds and what have you. Um, for me, it was, it was, I used the word already once, the word liberating. It was so refreshing to have the silence after years in the process of this divorce, years of talking with therapists and with my former wife, and with friends and with family and talk and talk and talk and analyzing the, the, the experience of just being alone with her thoughts. I had a friend who's a therapist, a, a psychoanalyst, in fact, when I sent him a picture of me uh, sitting cross-legged on the top of a, of a mountain cliff saying, here, I did a bit of meditating and I decided to take a selfie. He wrote back and he said, Ari, this whole trek is just one long meditation. And there's a lot of truth to that. I, I, I want to share with you, Pastor Luke, just uh, um, an interesting kind of um, perspective on this from, from our tradition. There's a, a, a phrase or a, a story in the Gemara, in the Talmud, from about 2,000 years ago, which is also repeated by a, a, a Renaissance um, 
era rabbi um, where there, there was a, a sage in the, in the Talmud who carried two scraps of parchment, uh, one in each pocket. One was a quote from Genesis that we, man, humanity, is created in the image of God. And the other from also Genesis that we were created from the dust of the earth. And this balance between I am a holy emanation of the, uh, of the universe, of the all-powerful, of, the, of the, the beauty and wisdom of God, and on the other hand, I'm nothing but a speck of dust. This balance, it's not a dichotomy. What's important from our tradition is that we have to recognize both elements uh, in our own identity. We have to treat ourselves and other human beings as representatives of, and in fact, as emanations of God with all the respect and admiration and gentleness that that requires. But at the same time, uh, we have to recognize that we are not the center of the universe. And that's the, that's the humility part of it. And it, it made a big difference for me in the beginning of my path towards healing, of recognizing that uh, even though my pain and suffering were deep and, and I had to deal with that, uh, that it's not all about me. <laughs> wow. That depth of knowing or, or coming to that place deep inside where you realize it's not about me. And like, I love that story to have both in the pocket, so to speak, not the dichotomy. Really, it's, it's the duality. It's both. You know, it's the it's the material and the magical, the metaphysical. It's the it's the the density of our bones and our flesh. And at the same time, it's the spark of pure energetic awareness that is our spirit, our soul, you know, all of this at all times. And when we can elevate our awareness and come into this, I, I call it a you know kind of a spiritual state of mind, if you will. But in that place where we can be uh, observing life as it is, not just through our filters and our perceptions, but just taking it in. I think that that's something that's uniquely afforded by solitude in nature or being alone in nature or just being close to nature. But when we're in that place, we realize how wondrous, how magnificent nature is, and then how truly small we are. That is, uh, there's something super special about that to me. I'm curious if, if, um, had you experienced anything like that prior to being on this journey and on this trek? No. Okay. Really, yeah. really, really not. And, and that's one of the reasons why it was, uh, I was not somebody who, who necessarily, I, I did a lot of meditating uh, in, in college. I learned, I mentioned Zen sitting, what have you. Um, and as part of my religious practice, I had occasionally had cause to, to do some meditation. Certainly uh, in the course of the lead up to the divorce, uh, I did a lot more. I went on some silent meditation retreats, what have you. Um, but I had never been somebody who was really interested in the desert. I found the desert <coughs> um, just much less pleasurable and certainly less awe-inspiring than the, the forests of Northern California or, or Northern Israel. Um, and so it was something that I basically had avoided for, for the 36 or 30 years at that time that I lived here in Israel. Um, so it was very, very new for me. And, and I, that's one of the reasons when people ask me about hiking the trail, 
I often recommend starting there in the desert in the south and making your way north rather than it is possible to do it in the other direction. Um, but I found it much more both meaningful and uplifting to move from the, the starkness and silence of the desert to the, to the uh, uh, vibrant and, and fertile uh, forests and greenery of the, of the north and the, and the coast. Um, so it was definitely something that was new to me. The desert is a, it can be a, a really powerful metaphor, right? The desert, you know, we, we might be in the, a desert period of life or to be, uh, you know, the Jewish traditional history, the stories of being in the desert for 40 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, but to, uh, be in the desert in the metaphor context, you know, it's, it seems to be desolate. It seems to be dry. And that implies a thirst, an innate mm -hmm. thirst that we're, we're seeking some source of, uh, nourishment ultimately, but, you know, looking for that, which gives life in an area that doesn't seem like there's a lot of life. It's just scorched earth. You know, what is out here? My experience in hiking through the desert, uh, and I've done a lot of backpacking in the deserts of Utah, Arizona, and that, and that area, region of the U.S., the, uh, the desert comes to life. When, you, when, when I went into the desert at first, you know, hiking in a forest, you're overwhelmed by the life. But when you walk into the desert, you see rocks and this and that. And a, a, a poem came to me when I was hiking through the desert one time. You know, I was just taking it in. Transient time, layers of change, create and destroy two sides of the same. Transient time, layers of change, create and destroy two sides of the same. In the book, you had mentioned, you know, just observing the rocks and there's, you know, 50 million years ago, this one jetted up and then this one over here stratified by a million years. Transient layers of change, it puts it into context and realizing that the timelessness of creation from the source to the sum of all that really helps me kind of orient myself or situate myself in into what's real right now what's real are my problems real are my realities real are all these thoughts real or is there something deeper that deeper knowing that i was uh, alluding to earlier in your uh, in your time in the desert, as you transition, as I understand, you're traveling north toward the the more fertile and lush northern uh, forests of Israel. Was there a metaphoric uh, transition with that as you were moving through the desert toward the more flush uh, lush? What was that like? I, I guess that's I guess. Does your journey resonate with that metaphor of the desert? Oh, very much so. And in fact, um, the next chapter, the first two chapters are, are about desert humility, but the next chapter uh, is part of that transition of still in the desert with a sense of acceptance that we were talking about before, but then transitioning into the hills around Jerusalem, which is in fact where, where my home and, and family is and was, uh, was the transition from that humility and acceptance of this is the situation I'm in, I'm divorced, I can't. I can't uh, change that um, to this sense of gratitude. And, and I remember crying. I describe it in the book, crying on, on seeing the first colorful flower after three weeks of the browns and grays and, and blacks and, and yellows of the desert coming across a colorful uh, flower and, and being so grateful, so appreciative of the color itself and the life that it, that it uh, represented. So, 
um, it was much more than a metaphor. It was real. The, the transition from humility and acceptance to gratitude uh, was very much part of the physical hike. And only then after that, in other words, the, the physical appreciation of the greenery of the first forest that I walked through, not to mention, by the way, the approaching of areas that I, I was much more familiar with in the hills around my hometown of Beit Shemesh near Jerusalem. Um, so there were all sorts of elements that were related directly to the, the trail and the hike itself, which then, of course, uh, allowed me to apply to, to the wider issue of the, the gratitude that I had towards my friends and family who'd been so supportive of me in the, the process of the divorce, let alone in the, in the, the lead up to the hike and, and supporting the effort of the hike itself. Um, full of appreciation for my, my parents, my brother, my, my closest friends, my, my kids, of course. Um, to even just the gratitude to have the have the privilege of hiking the the trail because not everybody can do that take two months off of work and I even ended up feeling I talk about this a bit in the book uh, a sense of gratitude towards my former wife if she hadn't you know, wanted to divorce me I would have never had the experience of having this uh, transformative solo hike. On the trail, I could have done without the fifty-pound pack on my back, um, but but I was definitely grateful. But but actually, less playfully, also very full of appreciation for the wonderful life that we had shared and built, the beautiful children that we had had together, the communities that we had helped to start and uh, and build, and and really what, what I called as a Hebrew phrase that doesn't translate so well into English, but as a pastor, you'll under understand it. The turn of phrase: uh, we built a faith-based home. In Israel, and that concept in the in the Hebrew talks about not just a physical home, but but a uh, a universe, as it were, of uh, of a family that that we created based on our shared faith, our shared both national and and tribal and peoplehood identity and shared culture and language and raising, giving birth and raising our children in in our ancestral homeland was just really literally uh, a miracle, something that I was incredibly grateful for. And that definitely accompanied me in those, that, that middle section of the, uh, of the hike. Let's talk about this a little bit. The, the, the humility, acceptance, and gratitude, those like connecting dots on the trail are almost like milestones or Karens, if you're familiar with that term, uh, sure. pointing the way. And I, I just want to back up on the pastor thing for just a second. I'm not Pastor Luke now. I don't subscribe to any traditional religion in per se. And hence the Soul Path podcast, opening up the journey for other people. I still care about nourishing spiritual growth and all of that. But I was pastor and I was uh, I was working in Sacramento, California at a non-denominational congregation. I had been invited. I had been living in Hawaii. Somebody came and saw me speaking and, and preaching and said, oh, wow, we'd love you to come to California and do this thing. And, uh, re, you know, light the fire here, spread it, let it grow. Yeah. And so yeah. I did. I took that, which was a significant uh, decrease from I had built up a business in Hawaii and was successful. I told my oh, wife, wow. I'm giving away the business. I'm taking the high road and I'm going into full time ministry. And so I went to California with that mission. And I was there uh, working in the church, you know, doing the good work and all of that stuff. And uh, my wife went into a health crisis and there became mm. uh, this pull in my heart to to take care of her where she was at. And then also to shepherd the flock. And 
the leader of the denomination was was telling me your calling is to be here shepherding the flock. And I'm saying, you know, in my heart, I feel like my mission is to be serving my wife over here. And mm. that was kind of the, the, the split of the tear between the church. And I went through a period of time watching the woman that I love be destroyed, ultimately, uh, you know, mm. psychologically destroyed might be a way of looking at it. And when we went through divorce, uh, she decided to take a different path in life and it ripped my heart out. I didn't understand. I had been praying and fasting and, you know, I had believed that God had brought us into this union. The two had become one flesh and all of the stuff ultimately to, to watch her walk out the door and be at a loss. There was nothing that I could do. No amount of love that would bring her back. And all I could do was ultimately accept that but I wasn't ready to accept that at that point in time. So I went into a, uh, a period, I called it back into the wilderness or perhaps back into the desert uh, where I was, you know, uh, fighting against God. I was uh, actively questioning and challenging a belief system that I had adopted in good faith, though intellectually there were some, I had some questions about it. Uh, but ultimately I just said, you know what, I'm done with all this crap. And I went into the desert for a period of time. And it wasn't until years later that I was studying the yoga sutras. See, I had broken my body in the military. I had three surgeries on my ankle, two on my knees. I dealt with a decade of chronic pain and the veterans wow. affairs, the VA was going to amputate my foot. And somebody said, hey, you should check out yoga. I was in a lot of pain. And so I got into yoga and I'm an all or nothing guy. So I was all in and I was really studying yoga. I was studying the yoga sutras. And I come across this passage in the yoga sutras that says uh, self-study, self-discipline and surrender to God. This is the heart of a yogi. And I thought mm. self-study. Yes. I mean, I am avidly, you know, self-study, self-reflection my whole life. Self-discipline. Got it. Got it in spades. But surrender to God. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> mm. And I, I had to chew on that for a long time. What does it mean? Surrender to God. And at one point, sitting and staring into a fire one night, it hit me like a bolt of lightning zinging out through from my heart. Every trial, tribulation, every painful moment, including the divorce and other things that I went through uh, connected. If it wasn't for those things. I wouldn't be where I was at now with the woman that I love, the child that I love, the family that I love. And in that, it broke me. It broke my rebellion, my resistance, and it just gushed gratitude. I could finally accept that it had to be the way that it was. I don't have to understand it. I can release my need to understand and just accept it. And with that, uh, with that context or with that story, that, that opened up my heart in a big way to having a relationship with God in a way that kind of skipped past my head. You know what I mean? It was more a heart level acceptance. And with that in mind, I'm curious, your, your pain, your journey, your struggle, you're in the desert, you're moving, you see the flower and there's gratitude in that, you know, uh, gratitude for familiarity and all of the things that you had been through at that point in time. Can you speak a little more to the acceptance aspect of it? Where was that transition? How was there a moment that all of a sudden it clicked? Please oh, share. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there definitely was. And in fact, look, I'm, I'm astounded at how similar uh, our, our experiences seem to have been with with regard to uh, loss of love, uh, divorce, and then getting out into nature, and then finding love again, which uh, that kind of, it's a spoiler alert, I suppose. Um, but that is also how, how my story uh, has, has wound up as well. Um, 
But that issue of acceptance was very explicitly um, uh, provoked by um, a, uh, a specific experience. I, I was hiking out, and this we're talking about the first day of the hike. There's a small book called the Red Book, which is kind of the informal, unofficial, but authoritative guide to hiking the Israel Trail. And uh, in it, the author of the book, who I've had cause then also towards the end of the trail and afterwards to both speak, meet, argue with, uh, and give some feedback to, suggests, uh, you know, if you have an extra, some extra time, you've got to climb this mountain because the views are breath- breathtaking. Now, the book is in Hebrew. And my Hebrew is relatively, is, is fluent. I'm a fluent Hebrew speaker. I've been here for 37 years. Um, but as I'm sure you can imagine, and most people understand about language acquisition, um, there are certain vocabularies which are general, where you can be fluent in a language, but not necessarily know all the words for, let's say, car repair and specific tools for spark plugs. Most of us, I don't know that word in Hebrew. Uh, actually, I do now because I've had enough cars. But you get my point. There are specific um, vocabularies for specific endeavors. So there was a word in his description about taking this little extra trail to see this breathtaking view, if you can possibly do so, that I actually, my eyes kind of just skipped over. I didn't know the word. So, you know, you get the meaning of the sentence, even if you don't know the word. Well, that word happened to be, in translation to English, happened to be steep. In fact, very steep is the is the accurate translation translation of that word. So I found myself on the side of a cliff with this fifty pound pack on my back. The first day out, it's hot, and we're getting towards nighttime. Nightfall is coming, and I have gone up on this uh, tangential path, and I'm literally scrambling hand over fist up boulders that are that are as big as I am mm. on a very very steep ascent, and I sat down. It's about an hour and a half before sunset, and uh, I, I basically started to despair. I took out my phone. I was going to try and call my son, ask him to call out the search and rescue unit of the IDF, Digital Defense Forces. Come take me off this mountain with a helicopter. What am I doing here? And, uh, and I really was in despair because I was afraid. I was frightened of not getting to the night camp by, by nightfall. Um, don't have enough water. Uh, that's the night camp is where I had planted some water, hidden some water behind a rock uh, by a tree where I planned to reach that night. Um, and the point is that I sat down and I took, uh, well, you've heard of Thomas Crumb's book, three deep breaths, Mm. wonderful book. I can highly recommend. And as the title implies, it's about taking three deep breaths, but, but with, with specific intentions of an understanding, the first breath. Is to is to calm yourself down and to center yourself, and the second breath is to allow yourself to see the possibilities uh, that are that are uh, before you. In any case, I took a few deep breaths, and I said to myself, "Arya, you know, get a grip. You're on the side of a mountain. You've got a fifty pound pack here. You have to get to your night camp, and you made a mistake. So you have to accept that it's nobody else's fault, and nobody's going to get you out of this. This is your reality." What you have to do now is make a good decision to figure out where you're going to go from here. Are you going to go back down? Are you going to continue on? Are you going to find another path? And that acceptance for me was crucial at that very specific physical moment of taking myself in hand and accepting this reality that I had created or that had, had, uh, had occurred 
Um, and I did make it in the end, finding the right path, getting to the night camp at, after dusk, but before nightfall. And I wrote in my journal that night how applicable it is to the situation that I found myself in, having just been divorced. It was only a few weeks out after the divorce that I was out on the trail. And uh, as somebody who believed in love and love forevermore and uh, till death we part or however you want to look at it, as you were saying, um, I never expected to find myself divorced. I have nothing against, of course. There are many relationships that reach an end and ought to be, uh, you know, dissolved or, or, or uh, broken up. That was not how I felt about, about mine, nor about myself as a person. I felt that marriage was something worth struggling for, fighting for, um, making every effort to, to keep alive. Um, so I sat in my tent and I wrote about the same acceptance I had on the side of that, side of that hill um, was something that I would have to adopt to recognize, listen, you're divorced. That's your reality. You're going to have to deal with that. And that, that was, you know, literally the first step in my healing uh, was that, uh, was that very acceptance. Mm. Mm. Accepting reality. And you, you had shared, uh, the reality that you created, you got yourself into that position, climbing up the hill, you know, kind of glazing over the word steep, not quite picking up on the language on that one <laughs> and the whole bit. Uh, and then, and then here you are, and what are you going to do? The choice to go up, to go back, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that is, I think, absolutely relative to every human being at some point in life. And really it could be a daily uh, realization that daily we are in a, we find ourselves in circumstance we have multiple choices. We can choose this path, that path, that direction, this action. And how do we get uh, centered enough to make a decision that we know we're making from our inner knowing or from the heart level? Uh, not just what I think, but where my intuition perhaps leads. I'm curious in that moment uh, on the mountain, was there any element of, of intuition of or was it just a going for it? You know what I mean? Like, did, did you feel? I guess one example would be like you're sitting on the side of the mountain and then you get the burning bush, right? Like go this direction. Uh, another example might just be that you're, you're there and you just feel like, you know what? I've been here long enough. I have peace about going in this direction. I'm going to go in that direction. Uh, can, you, can you describe that decision making for you in that moment of acceptance? How did you go from, from surrender and acceptance to taking action and moving forward? Well, I think for me, it was really a coming together of all these different elements towards the end of the trip. Uh, it's interesting you use the term taking action because um, one of the books that were, that were very just instrumental for me in my development of uh, kind of a life philosophy, but certainly in the healing from the, uh, from the divorce, because I reread the book, um, is a book um, called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and, uh, it's, it's such an, a powerful, um, exploration of the importance of having a sense of purpose in life, um, <laughs> which was born out of actually the, the author's experiences in the Holocaust, in, in the camps in Auschwitz. Um, he developed a whole school of psychotherapy and maybe familiar logotherapy, um, uh, which is focused on, on having a desire to live. The people who had a reason to live were more likely to survive 
the the death camps, the concentration camps, which is obviously a heavy and and very involved topic. But for our purposes, the the, the main message uh, was something that had always resonated with me. But in the last couple of weeks of the trail, as I was, as you said, processing the issues of acceptance, and humility, and gratitude, and we haven't really talked about the importance of forgiveness in my situation, forgiving my wife, forgiving God, forgiving myself for you know the, the pain that I was going through. Um, but the issue of a sense of purpose, of having a goal, was something that accompanied me all through the, the trek. I mean, every day I had a goal to get to the night camp that night. Um, I obviously had set myself a goal to hike uh, the, the length of, uh, of the trail itself. But I, of course, had the, the really more overarching goal of, uh, of getting my life back on track, as it were. And, and so, so that, that last two weeks on the trail really did bring all of these things together um, within the context of recognizing that I, I needed to set new goals for myself, personal, professional, relationship, love-related, children, what have you, in order to allow the healing that I'd experienced to inform um, my next steps and, as you say, to turn those, the, the emotional growth and the personal development into real action. Yeah, that's it. It is. We can't just be stuck. We have to accept and then move forward or move through it. And what yeah. what can we learn from it and all of that, um, which really uh, sets me up for a final question. But as we're coming into the time here, uh, I, I right, we are. I know it's I feel like we could go for another <laughs> hour. And so we might uh, we might have to continue our conversation in another episode. But to be respectful okay. for time today. Uh, sure. For anybody that is feeling drawn to you or would like to read your book, get in, uh, get dig deeper into your journey or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, the, the first and best way is through the website. The book's website is www.myisraeltrail.com. Um, the book can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, book depository and elsewhere and Goodreads. Um, but I suppose the first, uh, the first point of contact would be the, the website, myisraeltrail.com. Yeah. And I would say you might also look up, are you green on LinkedIn? You have an incredible uh, corporate resume as well. So you have a lot to <laughs> offer. You bring a lot into the world. Uh, I to wrap it up, kind of pitch you a final question. You know, you, you, you've had this incredible journey, a whole life journey, really, that's culminating and unfolding in this moment. Uh, your time on the trail, what was the big takeaway, the big wisdom? If you could just put it out there in a sentence or two and share that wisdom with the audience, what would you say from your heart to our listeners today? I suppose uh, the, the, the best thing that I can do, just summing up um, my experience to, to a great extent, is that um, the, the, the lessons that I learned, the, the concepts that I, I came to understand, which are to a certain extent part of the time-honored wisdom uh, um, and, and based on the works of giants, um, both in terms of Talmudic sages and, uh, and more modern Psychologists and teachers like Leo Buscaglia, or uh, or others, as I as I mentioned, um, leading to these these realizations of how uh, humility and and acceptance, um, gratitude and and forgiveness and this sense of uh, sense of purpose uh, 
um, have really uh, um, filled my life with a sense of, of meaning and were, were instrumental for me to deal with the personal challenges that, that I was facing. And I, I would hope and think that anybody facing their own personal challenges uh, or hardships um, could find um, in those five elements uh, a foundation of real, uh, uh, real inner peace uh, and, and a sense of harmony um, in facing their own, their own challenges. Humility, acceptance, gratitude, mm. forgiveness, and finding purpose. That is a path for anyone to find inner peace, to find healing, to find personal growth, spiritual growth, to find a deeper connection with life, with God, with good old divinity. Uh, I received those words of wisdom, and I am grateful. I'm appreciative. Thank you, Arya, very much for joining me today on the Soul Path Podcast. It has been an honor. It has been a joy. And I would love to have you back on to, to dig into a couple other aspects of the spiritual journey at some point in time. Uh, so I look forward to our continued contact. Uh, with that, from my heart to yours, I hope that you have a peaceful day, a joyous day, or evening as it is in your time. And I'll look forward to connecting with you again soon. <laughs> All right, Arya, have a great evening. Thank you very much, Luke. Me too. I very much enjoyed it. Wowzers, how about the bonus material, guys? Stories that are not in the book. I just want to say, again, that takeaway of how powerful it is to be in nature. When's the last time you went out in nature? Just go for a walk. Go find a park. Go find some spot where there's not other people right around you. You got a little bit of just me time, me space. Set that time apart for yourself. Maybe go out and spend a, an hour walking in the woods or on a trail if you're comfortable or capable of doing that. I promise that the closer you get to nature, the closer you are going to feel in your heart that you get to God. This has the, been the experience of myself. It's been the experience of Arya and so many other people. I'd say for humanity, it's a human experience. Throughout the ages, this is the time-tested path to personal spiritual connection. And if you're not already plugged into a fellowship of some sort, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, go check it out. That, that idea of, of trying the different flavors, the different religious experiences that are available. What that, what that demonstrates to me, guys, is that, that everybody's seeking this. We're all craving that connection with something bigger than ourselves. We're craving that connection with the essence of life itself, God, good old divinity. But we're also connecting, uh, craving that connection with community, of with like-minded people who share the same values, principles uh, that that are on the path, the journey of life together, supporting each other, the spiritual journey, spiritual fellowship. So, if you're not plugged into a, a group or fellowship right now, I invite you to check out heathenhouse.org. That's heathenhouse.org. That's the vision of my heart to gather a tribe of humanity that provides and facilitates fellowship for seekers, sinners, and spiritual skeptics. Just getting that up and going right now, but there are ways to to plug in and check out there. I want to invite you to do that. And with that, guys, please like and subscribe, share this podcast with your friends. Sharing is caring. And together we can share, uh, share the vibe, right? Lift up, elevate the awareness, share the stories, share the experience of each other, each other's life experience, all that good stuff. All right. Sharing is caring. <laughs> like and subscribe and I'll keep the good stuff coming. Between now and then, may peace pervade your day. Bye.